The world is a beautiful but challenging place to live. And let's face it, life hits hard sometimes. So if you find your hopes and dreams and mental well-being needs a boost, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Welcome to Inspire Us with your host, Jay Paul Nadeau, a former hostage negotiator turned motivational speaker and acclaimed author of Take Control of Your Life. And now, here's your host, Jay Paul Nadeau. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of Inspire Us. Yep, 26. Well, as I'm recording this, we are nearing the end of 2020. It is December 18th that I'm actually editing this particular program, and it's been one hell of a year, hasn't it? This has been just a shit year for so many people and for so many reasons. I just want to check in with all of you to see how you're doing. I know that I'm getting a lot of wonderful information from all my guests, and it's keeping me motivated and inspired. Now, my next guest, talk about inspiration. Sajel Bellin is my next guest, and Sajel talks about all kinds of things, from post-traumatic stress and how post-traumatic stress can actually be a launching pad to your better self. She talks about frontline workers. She also talks about how employees and managers can help one another through these difficult times. There's so much content that we covered in this podcast. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. And I've spoken long enough. Now it's time for me to introduce you to Sajel Bellin. Sajel Bellin, how are you today? I am so happy and I want to welcome you to Inspire Us. I got to meet you about a week ago. We had a conversation and there were so many things that you and I connected on, especially in the area of mental wellness and frontline workers. And I admire the work that you do and your background is phenomenal. And I just wanted to get you on the show here today to see if you could share some of that expertise with us. These days is particularly difficult, especially for frontline workers. Well, no, let me strike that. It is increasingly difficult for frontline workers, but it also taxes each and every one of us as human beings. And I know that you have a lot of thought and a lot of ideas on how we can kind of work with our anxiety and our stress to minimize it. Would you mind sharing some of that wonderful knowledge with us? Sure. I'm just so thrilled to, to be here. And uh, just in this conversation that we had prior, we laughed a lot. We uh, probably held back some tears along the way <laughs> and just kind of explored all of it. And that's what I really like because that's how life is, isn't it? Like it's, it's, it's such a holistic experience. And I want to start off by saying anxiety and stress and depression, all these things that we have this negative context to aren't negative at all, really. And when we start to think of it in, in a different light, if we start to think of it as nor part of our normal human experiences, then asking for support, asking for the things that we need during those difficult times becomes so much easier because it's not about what's wrong with us. It's about going through and having normal reactions to 
some of the difficult human experiences that we encounter. Well, now that is pretty profound because you're right. Uh, it's not that something is wrong with us, but why is it that we interpret the need to unburden ourselves or to at least share our fears and our anxiety? Why is it that we stop ourselves from sharing this human experience with other people? Well, you're you're kind of in um in in a worse spot than me, Paul, and and that's because you're a guy, mm. and typically speaking, as women, we tend to share. You know, we'll have a glass of wine, we'll have some tea, we'll sit down with our girlfriends, we'll chat, we'll talk about some good stuff, we'll talk about some bad stuff, and it's almost like a ventilation process happens. Whereas my experience in working with men and 90% of my clients are men, uh, because I do work in the frontline emergency response sector, and it is a male dominated industry. So a lot, I, I do deal with a lot of men. And the common denominator that I'm finding is that men don't talk, at least not about the vulnerable stuff, not about the sticky stuff, not about the itchy stuff. Like they just don't. And there's different reasons. There's elements of shame involved. There is elements of being perceived weak. There is elements of just surely our socialization. You, you know, guys, boys are told not to cry. Mm-hmm. Um, they're never taught words around emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's so convoluted because it's so so much layering. It starts right from when we're little to, to then we're grown and then it's consistently reinforced. And what I'm finding now is that, yes, this, this is the case and, and um, was the case, but I also know that we're in a time of shifting. And today being International Men's Day, you know, I just want to thank all my men out there and all our men out there um, to, to, and to remind them that we honor them um, and that it's okay to be human. Um, because I think so often we get caught up in our roles, in what we're supposed to be at home, what we're, our duties at work, um, just all of it, that we forget who we are as people. And I'm speaking as if I'm a man right now, because that that's who I, I feel like I'm speaking to right now. And I use we because I want to take it away from the gender focus and just relate to everybody in terms of being human again and, and encouraging uh, the men out there to tap into who they are as human beings. These emotions that they go through, the things that they're experiencing are normal human experiences. Yeah, but that's not an easy thing for a lot of men to get their head around. You mentioned roles, and I think that- No, uh, it's it, not. As a young boy, you know, you are told man up and you can't cry and you have to be the stronger and all these messages, not only from family members or your father or whoever it is that you first received it from, but it is society as a general, uh, as a whole, really, that you're expected to be a man. So be a man and keep what bothers you deep down inside. And I know that that is doing more harm than yeah. it is good. But where's the balance? How, how do we how do we get through to the men to to everyone to open up? You said women are more uh, likely to open up, and I understand that. That's very true. Uh, but men, we, we still have a long way to we go. We are. We are. Yeah, we still have a long way to yeah, go. Yeah, and remember, women were also 
you know, also sort of told to be quiet about certain things. And, you know, over time and over the ages, we've, we've found a voice, we are able to tackle those topics that we perhaps didn't talk about before, like sex and, you know, the things that were kind of taboo and we're not very, you know, uh, sexuality and things like that. And more women are coming forward with that as well. And so what I find is that we're, we're as a generation, we are changing. We are a, a, in, in the midst of a huge transition. And like I said, I want to create an environment and, and kind of open that invitation up for, for men as well, right? And invite them that during this time of transition and transformation and what we're facing as a global community is now is the time to be experimenting and exploring and, and trying to find ways to do things different that are going to improve your experience of your life and improve the quality of your life, both at home and at work. Mm -hmm. Now, you are a licensed um, a psychotherapist and a trauma specialist, and also you work in supporting emergency services in high-stress situations. Would you tell us uh, what that encompasses, really, and what your typical, I guess, encounter with emergency services people would be like? Sure. Um, so it actually started uh, with a very personal connection. Paul, my husband, is a firefighter himself, mm -hmm. and um, I've always been in the in the mental health space. I've always been in the organizational development and organizational behavior space. So always had a natural propensity for psychology and people and studying um, the emergency services. And of course, I love the the, the people in uniform, mm. right? So always have a soft spot. So. Um, this just became a very natural place for me to land, but it was a really eye-opening experience because as a family and as a spouse, we, we came to a breaking point and there were some very tough decisions that were, that needed to be made because life wasn't okay. Things weren't okay. And our, my marriage wasn't okay. And, um, you know, we had chalked it all up to regular, you know, stuff like disconnection because we were both busy people. We we're either tired, we were overworked, the stress around the kids. So we made a lot of excuses or rationalized why things were the way they were and didn't pay much attention to them. And it came to a point very, very quickly where it was a life or death situation. And that's when it became blatantly obvious to me that there's something else going on. And, you know, I felt very much like the, the shoemaker with no shoes because mm. I'm the therapist and I'm supposed to be able to recognize these things. Well, aren't I? <laughs> but I didn't. And because I was living in it and it was it was just different. And I think that speaks to our, our resiliency as people that we we keep bouncing back right from the things that are thrown at us. But sometimes we do that so blindly, not recognizing and diving deeper to find out what's going really going on. So we found ourselves at a, at a real breaking point. And then when he, my I asked, told him, I basically told him, I said, you need to tell me what's going on. Cause I like one foot out the door. And unless I know what's going on, I can't stay. And it was breaking my heart because this is my best friend. This is, I, I, I absolutely adore him, but I'd come to a stage where 
I could adore him from afar. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's one of the saddest statements um, that actually fuels my work today because there's a lot of good people out there. There's a lot of great couples out there and they're suffering because they're going through something. And, and we have so many couples breaking up because they just can't rec- fix what's going on or recognize what's going on in the moment. And we're resorting to breaking up over trying to figure it out. And to me, that's like two people that really care about each other, but just can't figure it out. And then we have a broken family. And that kind of mentality or that sort of revelation is what fuels my work today. And so I have opened up Mind Armor and SOS Psychotherapy as sort of two extensions because we can't fix the problem just from one arena, which is the individual and the family, we've also got to get the organizations and departments um, doing their thing so that we're creating a full circle of of safety and psychological safety and psychological education around this. So, sorry, that was a really long-winded answer. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know what? That's okay. Let me just stop you right there. Okay. Yeah. Um, you have touched on a lot of very important uh, keys, I think, which most of us experience. And when we sense that something is wrong in a relationship, without addressing it, awareness is is so important. To be aware that there is a problem uh, yes. is is the first step to fixing. The problem. The next step uh, in awareness is uh, communication, which is what you did. You identified a problem, you didn't quite know what it was, and you asked about it. And I think a lot of people out there, especially now, and I've read statistics, I mean, people are breaking up left, right, and center with COVID-19. We're mm-hmm. together all the time. And if there's mm-hmm. no communication, then there is no, there is no fixing and uh, what needs to be fixed. So my hats off to you for having identified that and for having pursued that. Uh, Thank you. How receptive was your husband to to that message or to your well, one foot out the door? You know, we got to <laughs> talk about this. Here we go, buddy. You know, and and I think that's what kind of broke the camel's back for him right. uh, because he literally fell to his knees and crumbled at the front door. And that's when he started spilling his guts about what was actually happening to him, Mm. the actual symptoms that are associated with post-traumatic stress. Mm. And as a therapist, I sat there and I, you know, this is going to sound so counterintuitive for anyone else out there, but I had a sense of relief, to be honest, because I was like, oh, that's post-traumatic stress. We can fix that. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that's when it hit me like, whoa, that's not what the average spouse is going to say. <laughs> that's not the reaction that other people are going to have there. You know, there's going to be fear. There's going to be like helplessness and hopelessness there. So we got to make sure that people recognize that there, this isn't end of the road. There's totally things that can be done and w- the way we can address these things. And I was so relieved because I knew that all these things that I had in my head of why I was having one foot out the door wasn't true. Like Mm. I had concocted my own narratives as to what was wrong with my marriage and that the marriage was over. And the fact that it was PTS was actually really good for me 
and good for us because I know how to deal with that. And so that started our uh, incredible journey of uh, Vincent healing himself and of us healing us and really creating, co-creating a place of solace and sanctuary and safety in our home for him, for me, for the children. And we're thriving today, even amidst COVID. We are thriving today mm-hmm. as a family. And I didn't have to lose my best friend in the process. And so, like I said, that is the, the, the mission. That is what we want to make sure that people realize out there is that post-traumatic stress is not the end of the line for you as an individual, for you as a family or as a couple. It can be a launching pad to the better version of yourself in so many ways. It's just about getting the right support, the right help, the right education, and being able to work through a process of healing. Right. And open the channels of communication. Because as you said just a few moments ago, sometimes we have this narrative in our mind without actually involving the other individual who is part of this narrative. It is a two-way street. So if we make up our mind as to what's wrong with the relationship, quote unquote, then we are only getting one side of the story and we are not getting another really important side of the story. Thank you for sharing that personal experience with us because a lot of people are going through that. And for those people right now who are at odds with each other in a, an intimate relationship, what could you tell them? What advice could you give them right now during this COVID experience that might open the channels of communication and start the healing process? Number one is perception. Mm. Just to recognize that our own individual perception often becomes what we think is reality, which is not often the case. It is just perception. And so what I would ask people is we all know right now we're all heightened emotionally. We're all exhausted Mm. energetically and strained in so many ways, financially, relationally, and so forth. So really pausing for perspective is, is key right now, which means just the next time you find yourself getting really upset about something or wanting to react about something, just pause for a second and ask yourself this very simple question. Is it going to matter tomorrow? Is it going to matter a week from now? Is it going to matter a month from now? And is it going to matter a year from now? And just kind of taking that gauge of the issue will kind of tell you priority-wise how much energy you need to put into it right now. How much intensity in the reaction do you need to put into it right now? Mm -hmm. Um, It just gives us a moment to kind of recalibrate before we go forward and trying to communicate with the other individual. Very often, it doesn't warrant the heightened response that we want to give. Would you say that a lot of those, uh, I guess those reactions are knee-jerk reactions to something oh, that sure. we, we don't fully understand, right? Absolutely. Look, emotions uh, are how we feel. Right. And when we feel and we feel intensely and we feel fast, we want to react 
And what I'm asking you to do is pause for perspective so that you have a moment to actually think about how you want to respond. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because reacting and responding are two different things. And reacting and responding will give you two different outcomes. And so when we think about actually how do we respond, we're all of a sudden able to go two, three steps ahead and go, wait a minute what is the outcome that I actually want in this situation? Mm -hmm. And then we will choose our response accordingly in order to likely move towards the outcome that we're actually looking for. I like what you just said, because to respond in a knee-jerk fashion is not always the best. And I got to say, let me retract that. It's, It's not the best at most times because we are solely reacting on emotion uh, to our perception of what is going on. So taking just a few moments to think about your next move is like playing a game of chess, I suppose. You want to see Absolutely. where the pieces are going to go and you want to make it work for both of you. So yeah, that's a really important key component. Uh, it's not so much what happens to us, it's how we react to what happens to us that matters the most, right? And in an intimate relationship, hearing each other out or just giving ourselves a few moments to take a breath is really important. So yeah, yeah. Now, I want to shift over to your excellent work with frontline workers. Uh, Many of my, well, I think most of my listeners don't know a thing about what you do, or they know just a little bit about what you do. So why don't you tell us about what you do? I see in the background, you have Mind Armor, um, one of your one of your organizations or the things that you've created. So tell us all about this. What do you do with frontline workers? Yeah, so, so Mind Armor is actually uh, my company that I run the coaching, uh, the psychoeducation programs and training from, and where I actually speak from as well. So uh, event planners, organizations, departments bring me in for kind of all three of those uh, or to play in all of those arenas. Um, and I actually love it because it allows me to tap into a lot of my areas of expertise. So I get to bring out the organize the benefits of the organizational development and systemic thinking as to what this looks like in the organization at various levels in various ways so that we're building something that's really um, holistic and systemically sustainable. Um, I love events. Uh, Paul, I, I love getting mm. in front of an audience and, and, you know, I have groups of thousands of people that will laugh with me, cry with me, um, and we connect, and it's probably one of the, my most favorite parts of my job. Mm-hmm. And the other piece is the coaching piece, because I truly believe that that goes hand in hand with the therapy piece. Um, you need to find somebody that can actually bounce between both of those worlds, because as I said, you're a person and you're going, you've gone through things, you're going to go through things, and you need somebody that you can build that rapport with that's going to be able to see you through all those things, the good, the bad, the ugly, right? Like it's, it's someone that you want to be working through um, throughout your lifetime, all the good stuff, like goal planning and achievement and um and then even working through those obstacles that you may come along um, as you're going on that journey. So I like to bounce between both worlds. And it's actually through Mind Armor, when I was in front of an audience giving my TED Talk, where I had a couple of chiefs come up to me after and go, oh my gosh, you really get this. 
you know, can we send some of our guys to you? Can I come see you? And it was at that time that I realized I really do need something like SOS, where when I do make these really strong connections with people, that they have somewhere to go. So I have SOS psychotherapy that actually helps now on a little bit of a more micro level, not necessarily department wise and so forth, but more of the focusing on the individual, the couple and the family. So I'm able to now go between both domains, work and home. Mm. And so through SOS, I support people um, through individual therapy, couples therapy, and group therapy. What are th- some of the things that you talk about during therapy? Well, without giving away uh, any <laughs> any personal details from anybody out there, right. but, but you gave a TED Talk. So let's start there. Uh, what was your TED Talk about and what message did you deliver to the audience, the TED audience and the world uh, arena? So at that time, it uh, what I was going through at home, we were still very much immersed in our own healing process. And so what I chose to focus on at that time was more about getting the story out. So people realize that this stuff is happening and they're not alone. Like what we were experiencing was not unique. Mm. And uh, what they could do at home in terms of opening up those lines of communication So I really focused on what I call uh, an educational framework called uh, heroic conversations. And basically heroic stands for an acronym of all the elements that we need to have in order to really create psychological safety and open up communication lines between um, any relationship, whether it's spousal, family, uh, family, or even work conversations. So opening up those lines of communication. Uh, that was the focus at that time. Mm. If I was to give another TED talk today, I think it would be a little bit different because I'm in a different place and I've got some more, lots more that have come, things that have come to light. So I could uh, probably do about five. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, I, I did a TED talk myself in 2015 and I've grown so much since then too. Yes. Uh, because I've studied, you know, the material and I've studied more human behavior and and that kind of same thing. So I understand exactly what you're talking about. So what are some of the signs then that people, spouses or other people can look for in a, a family friend, a family member? Uh, what can they look for uh, in someone to to kind of understand that maybe the person is in in need of help and how do we start that conversation well can, can i actually back you up a little bit sure um, you can. because i i think that that's a really important point when we're sort of already in that place of where there's something going on and where there's trouble and i really want to put a focus on we don't need to wait till then to do something. We don't want to, we want to minimize the amount of people that are going to have to recognize signs. Mm. We want to actually get people to say, Hey, I work in a high stress environment. I am a human being that is going to be seeing, you know, 300, 400 times more traumatic type events than the average individual. Maybe this is going to have an effect on me. Maybe this is going to have effect on my relationships. Maybe this is going to have an effect on my family. So perhaps we should be actually doing things to proactively build some protective factors. So that when these things happen, 
I'm going to be able to respond better versus react Mm -hmm. versus building that pressure in the pressure cooker and then having to be in a situation where we're going to have to find out what those signs are before to get help. Why not be proactive and connect with people like in, in mind armor or like SOS psychotherapy, number one, create the rapport with a clinician ahead of time so that you're actually talking to someone that you like and that you know you connect to and that gets you and knows your history, knows who you are, knows what's important to you so that when you are in crisis and you are vulnerable, you've got somebody in your corner already rather than trying to go find somebody when you're in the worst time of your life. So I really want people to think about if you know you're in an environment or in an occupation that takes a toll on you as a human being, why not start to build those protective factors so that you handle those things better and you're stronger and have an emergency contingency in plan in place because then you have somewhere to go and you don't even have to think about it. You just know they're there. Right. Now, uh, I think when you and I spoke the first time, One of the big factors uh, that I think most police departments or fire departments or emergency services can teach right from the very beginning, from the onset, are those coping mechanisms. Police officers are taught how to use their gun, but they're not told what to, uh, that the gun is not supposed to be used on themselves. Yeah, that was one of the main main biggest things that we came across. when I was speaking at one of the law enforcement conferences um, down in the States, you know, I asked a bunch of them. I was like, you know, you have so much training around your firearms. They're like, yep. I said, has anyone ever told you not to use it on yourself? Nope. Yeah. Um, As a police officer, I remember uh, more than once on one occasion, uh, more than once, either a retired police officer or a an active member had taken the gun and used it on themselves. And you're right, you know, that that's not taught in any training session that I know of. And mental health is not really a focus when you first start out. For me, on the police department, that wasn't a topic that we dealt with. Uh, Granted, that was several years ago. I don't know how much it's changed today. Well, here's the thing. Most people will will fret about even taking this type of conversation on, Paul, because they're like, well, if I tell someone not to turn the the firearm on themselves, maybe I'm planting the seed Hmm. that they might. So we, we, we tend not to have these conversations. And I'm saying, no, wait a minute. I think it's really important to have these conversations because from a neuroscientific level, we are planting the seed, but not for them to use it on themselves, but for them to recognize that, oh, wait a minute, if I'm thinking this, what does that mean? So it's not just about asking the, uh, making the statement, don't use the firearm on yourself ever. We have to follow that up with, if you ever think about turning this firearm on yourself, that is a sign or an indicator that you are going through something terrible, that you are feeling disconnected, you are feeling lonely, you are doing these, and here's what you can do. So what we want to do then is that when they do find themselves in that position, if they find themselves in that position, they are going to have a recall memory come back saying, ah, 
I was told that if I ever do this, this is what's happening. I have a better understanding of that now. Okay. And what was I, who can I call? What can I do? What am I supposed to do? You know, it just gets them, it buys them those few seconds. It buys them those minutes. It buys them those days. We don't know. We just, it buys us time and it gives them another thought process. And that's the premise behind the talk that I gave and is also available on the internet, a cause for pause, because that's a suicide prevention technique is using this conversation around a cause for pause, planting that seed that's going to get people to stop in that moment that they may think about taking their life, however they choose may choose to be considering it at the moment. The idea is that if we have these conversations ahead of time, we are planting the seed that their cause for pause will be triggered at that time as well and, and potentially bias time. And I'm with you on that. I think that that's a topic that needs to be addressed right from the very beginning, but not only must it be addressed from the very beginning, I'm going back to my own personal training as a police officer, police detective, hostage negotiator. When I first started in the police department, mental health was not a topic of discussion. Later on, uh, as the years went by, in my police department, the Durham Regional Police, we recognized the necessity to collect everybody who had been involved in a major incident. We recognized that it was important to get everybody together after the event to talk about what may be going on in their minds, what reactions their body may have to what they experienced. As you said a little bit earlier, and I think you were a little bit wrong, you said, uh, you're gonna smile at this one, you said that uh, emergency workers experience maybe 400 times more uh, traumatic experiences than the average individual. I would say probably 400, 4,000, you know, like it, it's it's so enormous uh, beca because you, you experience like your your husband who is a firefighter i'm sure he's seen his his uh, amount of deaths and and uh, and destruction and all that police officers have seen it too i was part of a small team of people a critical incident stress uh, team that were called out after a major incident to sit down with everybody who was involved and to share the information of what they might experience and to also offer the fact that there were people out there who could help them through this. And I think we we need to see that uh, in in everyday life, you know, like, and especially with emergency workers, I think we have to have that as part of the curriculum. Every course has to have a mental health component to it. Every magazine that is that is released by a police department to its members have all kinds of stories about, hey, way to go, John, you know, arrested so-and-so and he helped these people. And, and the Crown attorney is talking about the importance of, you know, giving somebody their rights and stuff like this. But where is the mental component to this? Where do we talk about mental health? And how can we, how can we change that? Yeah. And we're always talking about mental health in the negative sense. Mm. Like we're only talking about mental health from a perspective of an illness versus mental health as part of our wellness regime. And that's my point. I know that the officers that I work with are working out like fiends and they love it. And it's part of their lifestyle. Well, how come as a mental health practitioner, I'm not your mental coach, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's my question for those people that have not connected with a professional. If your roof was leaking, you would call a roofer, a professional to take care of that leak. If you need to replace your roof, you're going to call a roofer again. 
if you're going to go to the gym and you want to really become high performance, you're going to hire a trainer. Well, think of us as your mental trainers, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Because those, the right clinicians have those skill sets that are not just about treating an illness after the fact, but really building those capacities and putting in together, putting together those strategies and practices in your daily life, they're going to help you be stronger and more uh, capable of responding better. And I also want to point out that we, in doing that, you are actually minimizing the potential of getting post-traumatic stress disorder or injury. You are actually then opening up the potential for post-traumatic growth. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't recognize that. So as part of the SISM team, you know, Paul, my question to you, my curiosity was like, SISM is usually called in right away. Are they not after the incident? Oh, we were uh, that very night. Yeah. yeah. That very night, right after the uh, traumatic experience. And, and some of them uh, had, well, some of them were tied up dealing, sure. dealing with the victims. But for those who were able to, the dispatchers, the frontline officers, anybody who came in contact with that particular critical incident. Sure. Were incur- and then did you follow up with those people? Yes. Yes. Yeah. There was a how, follow-up. How long team. after? About a week afterwards. Perfect. That, and yeah. that's the kind of thing you want because there, there's, a, there's a certain timeline. So when someone's exposed to something very traumatic, when you actually go in immediately after, they may not be able to tell you that there's anything going on because they're still on the adrenaline rush. Right. They're still feeling fully capable. They're still feeling okay. And it's not till after, about a week after, where all of a sudden the lack of sleep, the hypervigilance, all these other reactions kind of uh, manifest. And they may not even be aware of it. So they can't even self-report sometimes. It's about what are other people recognizing in them as well. And they have about a two to three week window where we can, if they come and get help, whether they're reactive or not, They have about a two to three week window where if they go out to get that extra support, that little bit of a boost in terms of putting some strategies and practices in place, they will actually minimize the potential of then uh, moving those natural reactions, acute stress reactions to becoming symptoms of post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder down the line. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think it's so important that SISM teams are actually there. But to recognize that when they're there immediately, we're actually meeting more of the departmental and organizational mandate of checking the box that we've checked in. But for it to be effective, we need that one week follow up. We need that two week follow up because that's where we're going to catch the most people that need that kind of support. Right. Sage- and be the most proactive. Yeah. Yeah, Sasha, let me ask you this. Um, I, I know we're talking about frontline workers, emergency workers right now, but how about every individual now who, because of COVID-19, has been displaced? Many are working from home. Many are feeling that anxiety and that uh, that uncertainty of the future. Even now, we here in the greater Toronto area, we're going on lockdown as of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, we're back to March, if not worse. Well, we're worse off. And it looks like a lot more people are going to suffer. A lot more businesses are going to close. A lot more people will find themselves uh, 
uncertain as to what happens next. What can an employer do to his or her employees right now to give them that kind of comfort or to help them through this particularly difficult time? What can people do? What can managers do? You know, I think from an employer perspective, you know, I'd love to say that the employer can do this, 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 and this, but I think employers themselves are, are confused and feeling very lost because there's a, such a resounding Mm -hmm. um, amount of pressure uh, financially and the unknown. So I want to kind of take it back to even a step further to say, what can we do for each other? Employers for employees, employees Mm. for employers, like really think of it as a uh, reciprocal relationship and and think of it as human to human. Because right now I think we all kind of need that comfort, (laughs) like some sense of connection, comfort, um, hope for the future, something. And, you know, like I'm not immune to this. I, I actually had the wonderful privilege of having somebody reach out because they were really struggling in their relationship and wanted to get some help. And they gave me a call. I had this wonderful meeting with this couple and, you know, he called the, the spouse called me back and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I really, we really need the help. There's no doubt. We really want to work with you. Um, but the financial, is, is a concern right now. I'm just not sure where my business is going to go. I don't know what's going on. And you know what, Paul, Uh, you know, as a business owner, I get that. I totally understand that. But then as a spouse, I also recognize that sometimes we don't have that, that luxury of waiting to get the help that we need. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really stepped back from the perspective of a practitioner. I stepped back from the perspective of a business owner. And I just, I said, do you mind if I just speak to you as a person right now? And I asked him, I said, what, what would make it possible for you to get the help that you need right now? Like, what do you need Mm -hmm. to be able to make that commitment and make that decision to say, I'm going to get the help that we need because my I, my family needs it. Right. And, you know, he threw out sort of like a number and I said, okay. I said, okay. I said, I can, I can do that for you. I can, I can make that happen. And I said, because this isn't a financial thing. It's not um, a professional thing. I said, right now it's about us being human mm-hmm. and anything that I can do to help my neighbor and to help someone like yourself, I will do. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if, if more of us, I'm not saying give it all away. I'm not saying do those things, but find the right thing that is going to make the difference in someone's life. That's going to make the difference in your life. Mm -hmm. And just imagine if, if we could do that for each other, the, the difference that it would make, because it's not always about the, the monetary exchange. It's not about that. It's just about sometimes giving what somebody needs. You're so right with that. And I think most of us who speak publicly, uh, motivational speakers, keynote speakers have recognized that these times have really put a strain on everyone, including our profession. 
uh, we we work differently than many people. Uh, we don't have an office to go to. We have several offices to go to, and uh, we we give something that uh, we uh, expect and deserve a monetary reward for because we are working. But you're right. I've been in that situation since COVID-19, where people have reached out to me and said, "What is your fee?" And the moment I say it, they're going, "Oh." Um, I don't think I can do that. And I follow that up with what would you feel comfortable in doing? This is a time for us to give and take. And it is a time for us to extend our hand of humanity to help one another out. You said it so nicely before. This is not really even, and I hadn't really considered that until you said it. Uh, you know, when I say, what can managers do? What can we all do? What can managers do to help their employees? What can employees do to help their manager? Ask not what this country can do for you, but what you can do for this country. So why don't we ask each other what we can do for each other? So I really like that. I'd like to explore one thing that you talked about before. You talked about the, uh, the mental wellness, building our mental wellness up so that when we do encounter those really stressful times, we're more equipped to handle them. And it occurred to me while you were saying that, isn't that what we do when we physically exercise or when we eat properly? We are building an immune system to help fight off viruses and to help keep us healthy and well, uh, not only physically, but mentally. So absolutely. why don't we do that with the mind? And you, yeah. and you said that. I, I want you to talk more about that because <laughs> we really need to build up our, our defenses so that we can handle those tough times. My experience working with people, I dealt with people who looked at uh, trauma and setbacks in one of two ways. They were either completely defeated by it or they accepted it and they moved forward and they were strong and they didn't let their circumstances define their outcome. So what is it that more people can do to build up that mental muscle, to build up that mind armor of theirs to equip them to deal with what's going on now? So there's kind of a couple, a uh, few thoughts actually that come to mind. Um, so just in response to the second half of that question, <laughs> what can people do to, to build their mind armor? And in, po in positive psychology, uh, Martin Seligman talks about the three P's. And I really like the three P's because it's a quick, easy way for us to do a check. Um, in terms of what's going on in our life. And if something's really going bad, like when you said that, you know, what's the difference between some of the people that are really struggling with where they are versus the ones that kind of bounce back or bounce forward. And um, one of the tools that they can use uh, that I introduce my own clients to is to not personalize it. So I, I, I the, the mechanism that I work with is obviously the way that we perceive things, the the way that we talk to ourselves, the language that we use. And so when I say don't personalize it, a lot of people will look at something like failure and say, I'm a bad person, or I'm a stupid person, or I didn't do that right. I didn't. And so when we personalize something like that, it's that becomes very heavy. Like just saying it, I could just feel my body way down because my brain hears what I'm saying. Whereas instead, if I was to say, say, you know, that was the, the circumstance 
of the situation. You know, it's what happened around me or it happened because of something around me. All of a sudden that weight gets lifted off my shoulders and it's something that's externally sourced, the issue or the failure, right? Maybe it was even a behavior, a behavior we can change. Mm -hmm. Our personality is more permanent than that. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that we attribute whatever the the hardship is to something that's external, external or changeable. So the language we use with ourselves is very important. And a quick way to do that, to, to remind yourself about that is think about what you would say if it was your best friend that was going through a difficult time and they were like banging their head up against the wall saying, oh, stupid me, I shouldn't have done that. What would we say? We'd say, no, 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 no. Sit down, it's all right. You know, these things happen. These things happen. Not that you did something mm-hmm. or, you know, we, we'll, we will depersonalize it for them. So we need to do that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. The second thing we would say to them is this too shall pass. This is temporary. It's not permanent. So not personal and not permanent, right? This mm-hmm. thing will pass. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is what they say call or Martin calls per- pervasiveness. And that means that it affects all aspects of my life rather than just that one area or arena mm-hmm. in my life. Right. We, we think it's universal. And so to, to really put that into perspective. So that's a really quick way to allow ourselves to reframe what's going wrong and can be the difference between someone who sits in a space of struggle, which is, it's all about me. It's going to last forever. This has now ruined my whole life yeah. versus this was something that, you know, happened because, you know, at work, these things do happen. It was, uh, you know, the weather just got all the, we got all the calls. Everyone's exhausted. I get why mistakes can happen. It isn't just, this isn't going to happen all the time. This is just happening today because of COVID. Let's say we had a surge in numbers and, you know, it's not going to affect everything. It doesn't have to affect my home life. It doesn't have to affect everything. So those, that's just one quick, swift way I think the, the, what was the first part of that um, question again? It was something about building. I think it was, uh, yeah, it, no, it was really about, uh, you know, what can we put into place right now? Uh, we, we take care of our bodies or, or some of us, some right. of us have, have neglected to take care of our bodies uh, right. <laughs> during COVID and a lot of people have gained a lot of weight. So yeah. again, they've dropped the ball, uh, but for those of us who do take our our physical well-being and and our our nutritional well-being into into account what is it that we can do to train the mind to do the same thing well first of all i want to applaud all those people that are keeping themselves physically uh together and and nutritionally together because it all works together mm. it is very very difficult to be physically healthy if you don't have a nutritional component, it is very hard to keep the nutritional component if you're not mentally there. So like all our systems work together. And yeah. we know that when you're physically active, you're firing the right endorphins in the body. And, you know, the good things are happening with the neurotransmitters and the, you know, the dopamines and the serotonins. And that's what we want. So to remember that you are a system And so psychological, physical, and emotional, and nutritional, all of that works together. 
So if you're that person that's working out really well, that's eating really well, and then the mental piece is, is the last piece, you know, I would love for, to invite you to think about awareness, like to, to really assess where you're at. Mm-hmm. Um, because all of us are different. I don't have a cookie cutter approach, Paul, because our, all our situations are so unique. Um, but we can ask ourselves the questions to determine what, where are we at and what do we need right now? So I would ask people to, to ask themselves, what are you doing in terms of your self-care? So if you are doing the physical, write them down. What are you doing? And that, what are you loving? Because if you're physically doing it for your physical benefit and you're loving it, you're already doing something really good for yourself psychologically. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So to do the assessment, because you're probably already doing a lot of things right. Um, And then if you're eating well, are you stopping to actually taste it? Mm. Mm -hmm. Are you savoring it? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're treating yourself to something, even if it's not perfectly nutritious, are you loving it? Again, slow it down and, and actually enjoy the experience because that simple things like that boost you psychologically. And there's such, you know, I always, I open up my keynotes with how many of you have an extra hour in your day or two hours in your day to train your brain? Nobody ever puts up their hand. <laughs> I don't and think I'm so. like, right. And I'm like, well, that's okay. Because I'm going to show you how to do it in minutes and in seconds. What if I could give you little practices and strategies that will boost your mental well-being? in a matter of minutes and seconds. And we could even discover what you're already doing so that we can recognize where there's room for you to add in a couple of more. Right, right. Then you You are hired. Why don't you share that with us? (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole other talk, my friend. Oh my God, you know what? You and I talked about this before. Ours is going to be a two-parter, you know, simply because there's so much content to get in here. And, uh, you know, as as we go along with this, and we don't have too much more time in this episode, but we are going to have another episode, uh, I want to talk about what you hit on. It's that internal monologue that we have, the things that we tell ourselves. And even if you look at something as simple as going to the gym, well, we can't go to the gym, COVID-19, but you can work out at home. Uh, I myself used to go to uh, a a great gym. I used to go to Good Life, had a membership there, loved it, went uh, five times a week. And when COVID-19 happened, I had a, a nice dumbbell set here and a bench, but I also discovered resistance bands. And I absolutely love working out with resistance bands and I do it five times a week at least. So uh, when you exercise, you are building up this immunity system. So for those who are, uh, I guess, not into working out, would it be easy for them to shift how they look at working out for some saying, oh, that's so hard. And if you tell yourself, that's so hard, I can't do this, it's going to hurt, then you've already programmed yourself not to do the workout. You've already programmed yourself for defeat. What if you looked at it and said, you know, this is really going to benefit me. And I like working out, even if it's a lie. I like working out. And you just keep telling yourself, I like working out. Does that work? It has for me. (laughs) It has for me. 
<laughs> yeah, well, you know, and it will for some, like faking it till you make it, right? It came from somewhere. Sure. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I, it doesn't work well for me, uh, the faking it till you make it part, because I will talk myself out of it. But the 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 mind flip that I use that does work for me is coming from a place of appreciation and gratitude and, and opportunity, which is I get to work out. Ah, uh, yes. I've told myself that too. Right. Yeah. Right. I get to do it. And this one really is a powerful, really quick, powerful tool because, you know, I, I was trying to, I was driving to some, for a meeting, I needed to drop something off to my parents. I really didn't want to do it. I wanted them to meet me halfway. They didn't want to meet me halfway. I tried to convince my husband, could you do it two days later? And then I said, wait a minute. My husband doesn't have a choice to drop something off to his parents. His parents have passed. Mm. Mm. I get to go to drop something off to my parents. Wow. Wow. And you know, it just, it made up my mind in like an instant. It wasn't even, and that all of a sudden that fatigue that was like, oh, I have to drive 20 minutes out of my way. It was gone. It was gone. And I went to my parents' place. I ended up sitting not just 10 minutes, but a whole hour. And we had the most meaningful conversation that I probably ever had with them in 45 years. And you know what? I get to do that. And so even with the, the working out and, um, you know, just giving ourselves that little oomph that we need in those moments, every time you feel like it's too hard or you don't want to think of all those people that can't, or don't have the choice or don't have the equipment or don't have the physical ability or agility. Sure. It'll hurt. It'll hurt for a couple of weeks. Right. But it's good kind of pain. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And you get to do it. Right. And I love the way that you phrase that because you're right. And I've told myself that too, on those days that I feel discouraged is, uh, you know, I get to work out today and I, I go through it simply because I'm capable. And I, I, I just want to thank you so much for coming on here today. And we're going to have a second session, you and I, now that we've gotten... <laughs> Well, uh, we had a two-hour session when we first uh, spoke, so, we did. Uh, and we could have gone for three and four, as, as we were saying on that first date. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today and for sharing your vast experience and your knowledge and these tips to help us through these difficult times. How can people reach out to you, and where can they go to discover more about you, Sajel? Uh, you can find me at sagelbellin.com. I have a website that's set up uh, talking a little bit about what I do and have links to both mindarmor.ca and sospsychotherapy.ca. But I would love to hear from you. And um, I would encourage you just to reach out to me through uh, sagelbellin.com. If you Google me, you'll come up with a lot of the interviews and talks that I've done and the TED Talk and um I'm happy to share and I'm really excited to getting out there more and letting people know what it is that we do because Paul, one of the biggest, best things about doing what I do is to see the impact and the difference that it's making. And I feel the same way with the work that I do. I think you and I are both uh, champions uh, for people and uh, let's continue to do the great work that we do. Thanks Thank for coming. You. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for listening. 
Tune in next week for another insightful episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave your comments. For more information, check out our website at www.inspireus.ca. Remember, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's how we respond to what happens to us that does. Stay strong and resilient. 